Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Well, happy Tuesday, friends. Welcome to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, on Twitter at Common Good Talk, online, 1160hope.com. Go ahead and find our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Subscribe, rate, review, uh, and uh, we are grateful. We are really grateful for those of you who have done that and those of you who are going to do that. Well, happy Tuesday, man. How's your day going today? I mean, I'm with you, so it's going superb. Oh, see, you, you've learned over this year how words of affirmation I am, and I know that you are 100% disingenuous there, and I still feel good about what I you don't, said. No, it's not 100%. It's some percent, though. You're right. <laughs> it's so, you're, you're it's not, a closer you're not, to 100 right. than zero. No, well, I'm not saying that either. Yeah. You're responsible for 51% of my joy right now. Oh, Wonderful. <laughs> well, I'll take it. I'll take it. Well, we're oh, glad man. that you are joining us. Hopefully your week is off to a good start and uh, all is going well. So uh, jumping in, Christianity Today, uh, an article that, that caught my attention. And uh, it's not an easy article, but an article that caught my attention and that, that us as pastors and guys who work in churches probably uh, – I, speaking for myself, probably need to wrestle with more uh, than what I have before. So let me just read you some of this article. The Montana Supreme Court this week unanimous, unanimously reversed a $35 million judgment against the Jehovah's Witnesses for not reporting sexual abuse to authorities, saying church representatives fell within a clergy exemption found in the state's mandatory child abuse law. Montana law requires officials, including clergy, to report child abuse to state authorities when there is reasonable cause for suspicion. However, the state's law exempts clergy from reporting when the actual or suspected abuse is discovered in course of a confidential conversation, such as confession, that is protected by the clergy penitent uh, privilege. So I'll stop there for a second. Neither you nor I are lawyers. Uh, that might be news to people out there. You don't. You don't know my life. And uh, but I'm wondering, did you? Were you aware uh, about the clergy exception found in most states' mandatory child abuse reporting law? I'm fairly aware. In you fact, I, yeah, I, I call everyone uh, penitent just <laughs> just to keep that kind of in the forefront of my. No, yeah, I I have a very I have like. Uh, two lawyer brothers and a lawyer brother-in-law. So, like, legal talk comes up <laughs> fairly regularly. I can imagine. Anyway, more than maybe it would otherwise. But, uh, yeah, I had a, a, a loose sense of this. But the more that I read this article, the more that I uh, I wonder about 
its effectiveness. Yeah, in more than half the country, 26 states, clergy are specifically named among those who are legally required to report actual or reasonably suspected cases of child abuse. But all but four of those states, though, provide an exemption for the clergy penitent privilege like Montana does. So basically half our country, uh, clergy, if they learn stuff, uh, in where somebody comes to them as their pastor and says, hey, can I, I need to get something off my chest. I need to confess something that you are not mandatorily responsible for for uh, reporting uh, that abuse. I, I don't know. Not only was I surprised by that, but I'm really disturbed by that. Yeah, I am. And, too. and I'm hoping part of this article is saying that things are changing. A lot of states are trying to change it. But, man, I really hope this is something that changes and changes quickly. So why, why do you think this has been in place for so long in so many places? Uh, I think that the um, oh, that's a good question. I think that that there was high value in protecting the same way that there's attorney client privilege, that there was high value in in protecting uh, the the clergy uh, penitent. Is that how they put it? Privilege. Yeah. Uh, so that people would feel the open ability uh, to talk to their pastor without the um, uh, without the. Um, Putting the pastor in the spot where where now am I uh, like a like a lawyer here? Am I like a detective here? Right. But, but it feels like, especially as clergy, that in those situations, that the number one priority should be the children or the abused spouse. Hundred percent, right? Or, and so I think we as clergy, quite frankly, should reject these exemptions. Yeah. That we should be personally telling people. Uh, I'm not going to not everything you tell me is going to be kept in confidence if there are other people that I believe innocent victims who are in danger. And I think that as clergy, let alone the law, but as clergy, it feels like uh, that that needs to be the bar that we go to. And and I don't know why it wouldn't be like I don't know why a clergy member would say, hey, I'm going to side with the abuser here and their confidence. I I, I don't know why that would be the bar. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think. Especially the church, right? The church has to be a place where we care more about caring for the victim than protecting the powerful. Like, that just has to... Be, I mean, that just, you know... To me, it seems like a no-brainer. I wonder if there is some sense that the clergy are trying to protect themselves mm-hmm. or trying to... I don't I don't really know. Actually, in our very own Illinois, um, we've adopted new changes that uh, are not, have been effective January 1, 2020. Among them... Expanded reporting obligations for clergy members, though some exceptions tied to the clergy penitent privilege still remain, and obligatory annual training for all mandatory reporters. Again, I can't believe that's not universal. I would love to know why someone might disagree with this. To to your point, I'm like a little at a loss for words as to like why why this wouldn't be across the board that in the case of abuse or someone's a danger to themselves or others – I don't know. It's not something that I don't know. I mean, you've been a pastor for how long? 20, 20 years. Year. Wow, that's crazy. 20 years. Have you come across instances where like, oh, I'm a, I'm a little torn between whether or not I should say something. Is this serious enough that I should call somebody in or not? I've had that work. So it's never do I want to break that person's confidence who I think is abusing somebody. Yeah. I have had moments where I've said to myself, 
am I just making this up in my mind? Right. Am I going too far? Right. Is this really? Because you do and know that's you, real. That that's, bridge is burned once you go down that road. For sure. But you're like, I want to protect this kid. I think some of what's going on here, the article states that historically abuse reporting laws are a fairly recent phenomenon. Listen, here's a really damning uh, line. Child abuse was not a widely held public concern in the U.S. until the early 1960s. Jeez. And so part of this, I think, is our laws trying to catch up with um, with what is going on culturally. Uh, but I would say this, uh, church leaders and clergy members, it says, must be familiar with these state provisions and make certain they are ready to comply, uh, said attorney and church law and tax senior editor Richard Hammer. Whenever uncertainty arises about whether the report, he says, resolve any and all doubts in favor of reporting. Yeah, I think and I love this smart. last line. All states recognize, quote, permissive reporting, meaning anyone, including clergy, can make a good faith report, even if the law does not compel them to yeah. do so. That's what you and I were just talking about. Exactly. Like, hey, clergy out there, like, go, like be on the side of the uh, victim. All right. Instead, you have of, to. Uh, and, and I think that's a good takeaway here for all of us. Yeah. Like. Um, not just uh, don't, don't turn a blind eye to abuse. Right. Even if you suspect something. Uh, there's ways that you can confidentially report. There's right. other things. Like I think if we've learned anything in the last uh, you know decade or so uh, in churches, in pow- any places of power, that abuse takes place and that we as Christians need to be on the side of the victims and those being abused. Well, and, and I think we've now learned a whole lot more, you and I at least in the last year, about how difficult it often is for the victim, yes. for the one being exploited, to actually report something. So if you are... In entrusted leadership, particularly in the Church of Jesus Christ, like we have, we have got to be more proactive about about not protecting our name or our brand or not wanting to stir the waters or rock the boat. If someone's being abused, someone's being harmed in some way. We we've we've yeah. got to bite the bullet and and do the right thing. And I think that is. Uh, that is an important call for anyone in leadership anywhere. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, coming up next, uh, we're going to stay in Christianity today. And they weighed in on that whole Prince Harry, Meghan Markle, what they are calling Megxit over across the pond. Uh, but they linked it to something going on in the church as well. We're going to discuss that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. And uh, we are grateful for those of you who are joining us here. In just a second, I uh, want to talk about a story that you and I have joked that, that I am reading way too much about lately. Uh, but Christian <laughs> Day does something interesting and links it to something we can be learning about the church. But that was before. very cryptic. <laughs> about something that leads to something else that I think is connected. We call it a tease. Not done well. But before we do that, you have something from our friends at In Touch Ministries. Sure do. The new year, friends, is underway if you... If you were not uh, aware of that yet, and our friends at In Touch Ministries want to bless you with a complimentary wall calendar called Blessed to Be the Church, featuring Charles Stanley's original photography of churches around the world. I did not know Charles Stanley did photography, did you? I did not. Okay. An inspirational Bible verse from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and a motivational quote from Dr. Stanley accompany each photo. You can get yours today. You want to guess how much it costs? Uh, thirty nine ninety nine. You were close. It's absolutely free. Wow. At 1160hope.com slash contest. And everyone who signs up will be entered to win a copy of the Charles Stanley Life Principles Bible. So sign up at 1160hope.com slash contest. That sounds, like a, that sounds like a good prize. I would love to. Uh, what if you and I, one of our goals, if this show does well for like a decade, that we have like the common good life application Bible? Oh. We got into the Bible business. I don't like that sentence at all. <laughs> 
<laughs> got into the Bible business. Yikes. Good point. Uh, hard pass. <laughs> Maybe we'll, we'll walk before we run with some other yeah, things. Right. <laughs> we, we have mugs right now. So Did I tell you I worked in for Testament? So you I'm, sure I'm, This did. is my thing. That's true. It's in your blood. <laughs> it is. Well, Christian today talked about Megxit, as it's being called. And uh, <laughs> that is what's going on in, in England right now in the royal family as, as Prince Harry and Meghan Markle uh, have basically kind of dropped a bombshell and said, we want to kind of not totally pull out of the royal family, but but really change our role, do a lot of pulling out of what they've called senior royal duties. And uh, it's just uh, it is blowing up not only here in America, but uh, certainly over in England. And everyone's taken sides. And Prince Harry and Meghan Markle said they want to live in the U.S. even for six months out of the year. And uh, it is just it's kind of crazy because people are going, are you even allowed to pull out of the royal family? Yeah, right, right. But being a part of the royal family, uh, there are certain uh, benefits to it. You get millions of dollars a year, taxpayer funded, uh, to kind of be a figurehead, to travel and be kind of a a representative or an ambassador for the queen and for England. Um, but it comes with a lot of pressure. You remember the stories of Prince Harry's mom with Princess Diana right. uh, before her untimely and tragic death. And so people are just kind of going around about this. And you and I think rightfully last week when we talked about it said the, the, this is actually a sad story of a family kind of really in turmoil uh-huh. on the public stage. Uh, but Christian today did something interesting with it. And they said, you know what? This is really a generational thing of like, hmm. this is the way we've always done it. And now somebody in the next generation going, I don't want to be a part of that. Like, we can do this differently. I want to do it differently. Right. Uh, which is an interesting point because then Christianity Today says, you know what? This kind of reflects what's going on in the church. Right. And kind of this uh, loss of youth, loss of this next generation, and that maybe the church can have something even to learn from what's going on with the royal family. Yeah, and I think it's uh, – I'm I'm torn on this conversation in general, you know, because I was reading this article and there's like just some interesting things that uh, that Megan did that were apparently big faux pas, like wearing jeans to Wimbledon, riding on a jet with Elton John or uh, guest editing a Vogue magazine. Like I didn't realize those things were off limits no. in the first place, to be honest. Um, and I think the older that I get, the more I I'm learning to kind of understand both perspectives. You know, I think when I was like yeah. 20 and 21 and fiery, I'm like. This isn't how you're supposed to do staff meeting. This isn't what church is supposed to look like. Yep. These aren't how songs are sung. That's, you know, you just have this, well, which is easy to be idealistic when you're like, well, you're not leading any of it. So it's easy for you to complain over there in the corner somewhere, yep. youth pastor Ian. But yep. there's actually some realities at play here. The older that I get, the more I think, yes, yeah, some of those some of those reforms really, really do need to happen. But there's also a lot of wisdom in taking yes. a step back and saying, okay, why is this this way? Is there a reason that the chairs are facing this direction or that the program looks like this or that, that like really nitty gritty stuff? And I, th- I was just talking with a friend a couple of nights ago and how sometimes when new staff come in and they're like, we're going to completely rewire the tech booth and not ask the exactly. volunteer that's been there for 20 years. You're like, yeah, you might be right, but honoring some of the tradition and some of the long suffering and some of the reasons that stuff was established that way 
uh, I think should also be a part of the conversation. And that's a hard balance to strike. That's really good. They, uh, the article here writes, uh, although I believe there's still a place for the royal family and some of the values and traditions its members espouse, I also believe there should be room for a younger generation to forge its own path and bring its own strengths and indeed weaknesses to a new form of leadership. Will it be possible for this new generation to use its talents to bring change without having to face a crippling barrage of cruel criticism? Can that change hold on to the essence of the traditions, but recontextualize them for today? You could remove royal family and insert the word church, and you could write that exact uh, uh, paragraph. And that's kind of what you were getting at. And so the question becomes... Let's spin this into the church world. How do you do that well? Like, how do we do that well? How do you listen to the next generation with, like you said, not scrapping everything from the past? Right, right, right. And, and not, not get freaked out by the fact of all these articles saying the youth are leaving the church. Right. But also, like, I, that's a hard one for me to walk. I have, I have a hard time with that. So what, do you, really? what are your thoughts on that? I, I'll never forget the first time I heard Andy Stanley say, the next generation idea is not going to come from the previous generation. And he says, mm-hmm. so I'm going to talk to the 45 and up crowd that's with me right now. You can fight it or you can fund it. And he said, my job isn't to just completely get out of the way and just let them run amok, but it is to to recognize that. And I think at the time he was maybe maybe even early 50s. But the idea that I have two options, I can like keep white knuckling this and probably do okay for the next 20 years. Or I can say that's a crazy idea. But the ideas I pitched when I was your age also seemed crazy. And I'm actually going to trust some of your instinct and the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding and directing you. And I think that all comes down to relational equity. I don't think you really get Mm. this, this kind of cross multi-generational innovation unless there's like deep trust and affection going both directions. Because I think, um, you know, both will always make a compelling case to themselves. But if there isn't a, I mean, I think what Andy was saying was, yeah, I, I funded stuff that terrified me. That mm-hmm. I legitimately was not sure was a good idea. And I'm like, okay, that takes trust. Exactly. Because something that big, and I, th- I mean, it's not about size in this regard, but I think that to trust something like that to an idea that he wasn't sure about has got to be terrifying. But it was so important to him to send a message like, you know, we, we care about the next generation leaders. Yeah. And there's plenty of stuff that I'm sure he says no to. He's like, nope, yeah. that's just not who we are. I thought of this quote. I think I shared this last week, actually, Winston Churchill said, without tradition, art is a flock of sheep without a shepherd. Without innovation, it is a corpse. Hmm. Kind of tradition, innovation, that tension is sort of what we're talking about, yes, right? Yes. And I think both are deeply significant. And if the trends that we're seeing, that millennials are more and more interested in liturgy and high church expressions, then it makes sense that they're actually longing for some of these anchorings in the past mm. and innovation. I think it's I think it's a really interesting time that we're in right Absolutely. now. Absolutely. That's good. It's really well put. Let me read as we close this how the article ends. Uh, the author is Krish Kandaya, is a UK-based speaker and author and founder of A Home for Good, uh, writes, and I look forward to seeing how their decisions might help the royal family progress and perhaps how it might even encourage the church as we Christians wrestle with important questions, champion new causes, inspire racial, inspire racial inclusion, and engage the new generation to lead our ancient institution into the future. I think that is really well put. It kind of encapsulates what you said, Andy Stanley said. I think we right. all hear it. It just takes, I think trust is a good word. It also just takes guts. Totally. It also takes some guts. So uh, we'd love uh, your feedback on this. You can do that at the Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Coming up next, uh, and uh, a journalist out of Iowa, uh, before he died, penned his own obituary. Uh, Going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks for joining us here on this Tuesday evening. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Twitter at Common Good Talk. Uh, online, 1160hope.com. You can find our podcast wherever uh, it is you get your podcast. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, review. Uh, tell somebody else about it. Go uh, go share it with them. And uh, we're grateful for those <laughs> of you who do that. I why that came across so creepy. <laughs> yeah, go share it with them. Hey, watch it. Go share that. <laughs> it's like a, what do you? <laughs> what is he? Uh, is the, <laughs> you need to do a whole segment. I think that voices. was from yesterday. yesterday. Yeah. It was. <laughs> But everybody listens to all two hours every day, of right? Of course so they, they do. They right. know what we're talking about. Well, uh, came across this story, uh, and it's it's a little bit sad, a little bit feel good, a little bit funny. So, uh, an Iowa journalist uh, known for his comedic storytelling and lightheartedness penned his own impressive obituary ahead of his death on January third. So, let me give you some of the background. Uh, Ken, Ken Fusen, he died of liver cirrhosis uh, in in Omaha. He was sixty three years old. He remained in positive spirits during his final days, working in plenty of jokes in his obituary, which he shared in the Des Moines Register, his former paper. I love the way he started it. He kicked off the piece of writing by making a wisecrack that while he was dead, he is, quote, stunned to learn that the world is somehow able to go on without him. Uh, he also hilariously looked back over his career, but then he turned a little more serious. Hmm. Uh, He talked about, he said, Ken suffered from a compulsive gambling addiction that nearly destroyed him, but his church friends and the loving people at Gamblers Anonymous never gave up on him. Ken placed his last bet on September the 5th, 2009. He died clean. Uh, He credited his faith in Jesus for transforming his life. He was a member of the First Methodist Church in Indianola uh, and uh, goes on to talk Uh, about his career and he concluded by saying this Uh, he concluded his quote too long obituary encouraging his loved ones to quote embrace every moment he said see you in heaven ken promises to let you cut in line and so uh, i I love that he wrote it in a very light-hearted way but but also a poignant way uh, and I and I just wonder your thoughts on even the ability to write your own because we'll spin this forward to the whole if you could be remembered for anything what would you be remembered for but more what he was able to do here what do you think of this well I, I read from another article here he said uh, in lieu of flowers Ken asked that everyone wear black armbands and wail in public during a one year <laughs> grieving period <laughs> during a one year grieving period <laughs> he says if that doesn't work how about donating a book to the public library yes this obituary is probably too long Ken always wrote too long <laughs> like <laughs> I love that he wrote the third. Person. Yeah, he wrote in the third person as if somebody else had been writing it for him, which I think is so fascinating. Did you ever see the movie Get Low, by no. the way, with Robert Duvall? Do you know the premise? I do not. It's Robert Duvall at his most Duvallist. <laughs> uh, he's like this um, – he's, he's a bit of a – hermit that lives in the woods and is kind of realizing during the end of his life that he doesn't actually have any friends, any community. And so he wants to throw a funeral for himself before he dies. And it's a whole kind of uh, observation about the nature of life and death and friendship and what we want to be known for and all the stuff that you were raising yep. as a question. I think this is interesting, especially since he is a writer and this isn't a an angle that you typically see, particularly about topics that are so sad. Yeah. And I... And again, we've talked about this in the past about the nature of humor and the importance of um, being able to actually laugh about some of the most tragic parts of our life can really be really, really healing. I think his particular approach is so interesting to me. I don't know personally that I would have the wherewithal 
um, because he was young, you know. So like that that's heartbreaking, legitimately, and for him to have the wherewithal, I wonder if that was like life giving for his you family to see what, him. Oh, for his family, I yeah. Gotcha. Or or were they? Less supportive of it. Like, come on, can can you just take this seriously, please? Can you like? I wonder if there was some of that even within his own family dynamics and how that was. I'd be curious to know how that was received. It's interesting. He said he survived by his sons Jesse and Max and a stepson Jared, who all brought Ken unsurpassed joy. He hopes they will forgive him for not making the point more often. He loved his boys and was parenthetically and is extraordinarily proud to be their father. Oh gosh! He's like he he realized I wasn't good at telling my kids these things, so I'm going to put this in here, uh, and that must have been really powerful for his kids. Um, and then he goes. Uh, he joked, Ken had many character flaws. If he still owes you money, he's sincerely sorry. But he liked to think that he had a good sense of humor and a deep compassion for others. He would give you the shirt off his back, even with the ever-present food stain. Thank goodness nobody asked. It wouldn't have been pretty. <laughs> so very self-deprecating. <laughs> right. And I'm wondering, uh, not only you and I aren't writers per se, but we are speakers, Uh I've often have you ever heard of people who like if they know they're dying will like produce a video to be played at their funeral yeah, and right. say something not not to think it's appropriate could you ever see yourself doing that and wanting to do that and then I'd follow that up with like what would you say if you did or if you did what he did what are what are some of the things you'd want to say hopefully be able to say yeah gosh I truthfully have no idea yep good <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say you seem content with that answer You're like yeah uh, yep. I think um, I, there was a, a documentary that I'd watched a couple years ago. I forget what his name was. He was a football player who was diagnosed, I think, with Lou Gehrig's disease. Okay. And it was this, uh, it was kind of a long decline, but it was like an inevitable decline. Mm-hmm. And so we started documenting everything he possibly could uh, for his son. And the documentary is like such a tearjerker. And I remember watching it. I think it was actually before I had kids, but I remember watching it thinking, that's a lot of what I would want to tell my mm-hmm. son. And his son was very, very young. Uh, so he was having to record things that he knew that his son wasn't even going to really understand till yeah. long after he was gone. I remember that hitting me really hard. Like, how do you mm. pass? Like, if I were, if I knew I had a year from today, my eldest is only two. That puts me in a very different place than it does for you. Where like you're able to talk to your kids with a, a different level of consciousness, a different right. level of cognizance. They remember, like, it, they'd remember sure. it. They would understand what you're saying. Um, I remember that being really heartbreaking to me. Like, gosh, how do you even really convey something? to what is currently a child and you're not really sure if he's going to like music or sports or, you know, like all that was really difficult, but I, you know, there were probably obvious paths that you and I would want to take about like faith Mm -hmm. and about love. But I think particularly for like my boys, it'd be, it'd be about courage and compassion. Mm -hmm. It'd be about integrity. It'd be about some of those lesser talked about traits, I think. And, you know, and it'd be not just to my boys, it'd be to my wife, it'd be to my family. And, I don't know that I ever could actually get through it, to be yeah. honest. Like That would be really tough for me to conceive of successfully getting more than a couple of minutes on tape to actually talk to him. Like, that part alone seems impossible. Absolutely. To me. Yeah, maybe that's a better way to frame this. Like, if you could speak to your family, because, you know, I'm not sure that I'd want to get up and do one last melodramatic last sermon. Or, right. And how creepy would it be to have a video of yourself at your funeral? <laughs> right. <laughs> be a little narcissistic. Like... I'm going to speak this one. And, uh, but yeah, thinking through like, what do I want to be remembered for? And, and it can be a little bit, you know, ugh, heavy, but you do want to say uh, what you want to be remembered for. And this is an obvious statement. How you want to be remembered for is just a reflection of how you're living your life now. Uh, and so 
the next step to go, what, how do I want to be remembered is to ask, how am I living now? Right. Would my kids look at this and be like, hmm, that's not really how you were, Dad. And right. so, uh, I, I, uh, you know, that's where I get challenged. Like the whole, how would I want to be remembered at my funeral? I'm going to be remembered at my funeral for exactly how I lived my yeah, life. Yeah, right. It's not going to be like, they're not going to mysteri- like amazingly come there and be like, he was the most generous yeah. and giving right. person if I wasn't a generous and giving right. person. And so uh, it is something to think about. We don't all like to think of our mortality, but it's coming at some point. It is helpful to think about how do I want, what do I want to leave behind? Yeah, I think uh, I was a Canadian songwriter. I can't remember her name. Alanis Morissette. You nailed it. It's my only one. You got it. That's okay. <laughs> she said something like, to not think of dying is to not think of living. Mm, that's powerful. Well, I I think it is. I can't tell if it's powerful or not, but I think it's interesting at the very least that you know you and I have the odd, bizarre privilege and also weight of having officiated funerals, and that mm-hmm. has a way of kind of crystallizing for you what's really important in life, even if, you know, sometimes you're officiating for people that you don't know all that yes. well. And I think those are the kind of milestones that, like, I tend to drive home from them thinking, I need to stop griping so much, hmm. or I need to stop losing my mind that too many lights are left on, or, like, you know, it has a way of <laughs> yeah. just, like, sort of making stuff that's meant to be peripheral fade away a little bit, and I Absolutely. think that death has a way of doing that. So, it's, it's a lighthearted article in, in a funny way about, about his own death. We'd encourage you to read it. Uh, coming up next, Relevant Magazine had this to say, why I left the cult of calling, and you should too. We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope you're like, you don't like this music, do you? I don't like this one. Too cheery? Too uh, poppy? Too, what is it? No, it's not too, it's like, it just feels off. It feels dissonant. Oh, okay. It is a relatively popular song. Hi, John. But Oh, hey, John. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's weird. We can see him and know when he's about to weigh in. I wonder if we're listening audience and we're like, well, who's that guy? We should just keep talking through him like it's not happening. So we'll be like, am I hearing something else? I'm sorry. Go ahead, John. No, I'll, I'll, I will remove it from the loop. <laughs> you don't need to. I mean, if you want to, I wouldn't turn it down. Isn't that, that weird high pitch? I don't know if you can hear it through the, the AM. The dogs are hearing it. Yeah, the dogs can. They're just howling. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that is John, our producer you are hearing. He does a wonderful job here for the show. Uh, you can find stuff for the show at Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, Twitter at Common Good Talk. Find our podcast wherever it is you find your podcast. At Relevant Magazine. Go ahead. No. Nope. Relevant no, Magazine. Uh, about a year ago, uh, they wrote an article called Why Left the Cult of, quote, Calling. And this is um, maybe people out there won't resonate. It was as somebody who's grown up in the church and then went to a Christian college uh, and then you know became pastor. This idea of calling has always been uh, one that's important, dangerous, confusing, all of this. And so I wanted to read this author's name is Leslie Verner. I wanted to read the kind of the first half of what she wrote here okay. uh, and then get your get your take on it. She says, <clears throat> I don't like to say that God, quote, calls me anymore. When I graduated from a Christian college, I believed I would change the world. I was determined to be useful, significant, and different. I wasn't going to join the throng of sellouts who eventually moved to comfy white picket homes in the suburbs and attend churches where conversations afterward are meaningless and trivial because I was called to be a missionary, Mm -hmm. the highest calling a Christian can have. Every decision I I made propelled me on that path. College? 
a place that would offer overseas opportunities. Major, something useful that could go, that could also slide under the radar if I went to a closed country that was anti-Christian. First job, teaching in inner city Chicago until a door opened up to go overseas. First chance to go abroad, China, because closed countries are the place to be if you really love Jesus. I finally had the chance to answer God's call in my life to serve him as a missionary after a few years of teaching in the States. I sold my car, quit my job, moved to China. I was finally doing what I was called to do, so I loved knowing that I was living such a high calling and making a difference in the world. And then I fell in love with an actor in Chicago who was not, quote, called to missions. Hmm. And I had to face some hard questions. What if God hadn't called me to missions after all? What if I was just being a tad prideful about my calling? What if I was worshiping my call? When I made the decision to move back to the States and get engaged, I felt like a failure. Though God had made it unmistakably clear that this was the man he intended for me, I still struggled with all the demons in my head telling me I was selling out by leaving the mission field. But God, Hmm. he wanted more for me. He wanted me to step down off my pedestal and walk among the, quote, uncalled for a while. He wanted me to untangle my identity, unwind all the programming that led me to believe that I was more, uh, that I was doing more and being more than other Christians, that my life was somehow more meaningful because I was serving him in another country. I now understand something about my calling. I am not called to missions, marriage, motherhood, writing, or teaching. I am called, first and foremost, to intimacy with Jesus Christ. That is my call. What do you think about that? I think it's pretty good. I think there's uh, a couple of things that I might not totally agree with. But in general, though, I think calling is certainly one of those terms, those phrases, that word that has made its way into Christian subculture uh, without a lot of scrutiny, where... It will get tossed around a lot without any real um, understanding about what it is even that we're asserting is happening. And part of what she gets at a little bit later is, you know, the the assumption then that is if I'm called to this and I somehow missed the signal or I missed my cue and I certainly fit in this camp, probably late high school, early college. Like, okay, so if I miss a calling and like I say, I go to the wrong college. Yes. If I go to the wrong college, it means I'm going to meet the wrong people and get the wrong degree and then end up marrying the wrong girl and have the wrong kids. And I'm, you know, like the trajectory shift just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And that was petrifying. It actually, in a lot of ways led to a real obsession over trying my best to make sure everything was the right decision Mm. to an obsessive degree, which is like, well, I don't want to fall off course of my calling because if I do, then my whole life is screwed up, yeah. and that that can be a lot of pressure. However, I can say on the other end, I think sometimes without any attention to that question, without ever really stopping to think, is this the kind of life? Am I becoming the kind of person that I think mm. Jesus wants me to become? I think that is also an error to say, like, hey, it's not about calling. Live your life. Do whatever. You know, as long as Jesus is king or you mm-hmm. say Jesus is king or you say Jesus is your aim, um, because having Jesus as your aim – carries with it some other pieces of formation that I think are worth talking about that she, and probably because of space, she doesn't really get into. But when we, when we dichotomize this, I don't worry about calling. I'm just in love with Jesus. You're like, mm. yeah, but Jesus does call people to a different way of life. To apprentice the ways of Jesus means that there are things that we'll have to say no to or cut out of our lives or things that we'll need to shift. Mm. But I don't think it necessarily is like how many of us talked or have talked about calling is this blueprint for here are the steps for the next 30 years of your life. And she goes on later to say, I don't even think callings are necessarily always forever. It could be, you know, for this season, which I've 
kind of always agreed with, to be honest. Like, yeah. oh, it's in this season we're called to be in this city or in, in this mission field or yeah. with this job or whatever. And I think uh, I appreciate this the perspective overall. I think it raises some good questions. I think it does, too. I, you, you did a good job painting the picture of that pressure. I remember being at Wheaton literally – uh, my wife and I, we were, we were about, we were like kind of in this, like, are we going to start dating? Uh, like we, we were good friends. So we knew that if we start dating, it would kind of start at a kind of a serious spot. Right. right. And so I remember literally having the conversation with her. Mm. I don't want to go overseas. And she went, okay, good. Me too. But there was like, it, it, it kind of acknowledged <laughs> this underlying pressure that like, right. You were thinking it. I'm thinking it. <laughs> like, there's a lot of people here who like that's the pinnacle. Like, right, is right. that you? Because we need to have that conversation now. Right. And feeling that pressure of always like, what am I called to do? Yep. When in reality, and I get it, some people are called to specific things. Like, I believe that. Like, uh, but also that then also can let some of us off the hook who might not feel like we're called to specific things. Right. Of like, no, we are all called. Uh, to be, you know, we've used the phrase everyday missionaries. Like we're all called to mission fields here. It might be your office and your neighborhood. It might be China. It might be this. And so I also don't want to let everybody off the hook. Like if you're a Christ follower, you are called. Uh, It's going to look different for all of us. But but, uh, using the term, I think, can become very loaded. Yeah, I think part of what's difficult is that when you poke at some of these terms that people are really comfortable at using, it can feel very disorienting to even raise questions like this. Like, Mm -hmm. wait a minute. Are you saying God doesn't call people? Right. Like even what you were just saying, like why would God call some people specifically and other people not specifically? Mm. I I don't even know that I necessarily agree with yeah, that. I think it might have been might have been Spurgeon. He said I'm summarizing, but he said something like, Yeah, love the Lord and live your life. Like it is sort of a yep. let, let that lead guide and direct. But if you end up being a cobbler or an entertainer right. or stay at home mom or dad or whatever, like if all of that is surrendered to the kingship of Jesus, the lordship of Jesus, right? He's Lord, not Lord elect. It's not just mm. about being Lord in some future reality. It's, okay, I'm daily dying to myself, as the Apostle Paul invites us to do. Then I wonder if we can trust the Holy Spirit's work in our life to actually, okay, I'm Lord, I'm trusting you with this, and I have the opportunity to either be a teacher or a crackhead. You're like, no, I don't think you're going to really have a knockdown, drag out debate between the <laughs> two of those. are you calling me to? Right, yeah. exactly. It, it, that's not really a, a question, I don't think. It's obviously not always that clear. But I think the other thing that she highlights really well is that so often we see our identity as inextricably connected with what we do, you know, and the idea that, you know, I am the product of my accomplishments is so destructive that, you know, you are you are an image bearer with a job to do, not a job doer with an image to earn. You know what I mean? Like it's a very, Uh, we get that out of whack and I'll I'll just read how she ends it because I think it's, she said, I no longer say that God calls me in the same smug way that I once did, assuming that a call is forever, even that there is a hierarchy of calls with some being more holy than others. Instead, if I use those words, I preface it by saying that I am called to this for now. Uh, And if and when that calling shifts, I am left standing on solid ground because my calling is to intimacy with Jesus Christ. I just think that is a good reminder. It's an important reminder. It's an important discussion about the the words that we use, particularly when it comes to our faith. Well, Well put. You can read this article from Relevant Magazine at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. Well, coming up next. Uh, We're going to talk about another Chicago pastor who did something he shouldn't do. We're going to discuss that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everyone. It's Ian Simpkins here. And I remember the first time that I actually learned about Thriving Financial. I was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and me and two other pastors had this dream, this idea 
to better care for the marriages in our communities. And so we started to dream up this conference idea. What if we actually hosted a local conference to pour into marriages and couples in our churches, in our neighborhoods, in our communities? And Thrive and Financial kind of came alongside and not only like made the conference possible, but they were actually interested in partnering with us as churches, as pastors, to help people not only be wise with money, but to live more generously, which was always a value that I had and always struggled to find organizations that actually wanted to help our churches do that. And so that's actually kind of the beginning of what's been a really beautiful journey and relationship with Thrive and to actually be wise with money, to live generously, and to help other people do the same. And so if that interests you, I'd encourage you to go to Thrivent.com to learn more. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good Whoa. on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Whoa. My name is Brian Fromm. I've got some caffeine. I'm ready to roll. Let's Coming in hot. <laughs> <laughs> what is the source of your caffeine? My goodness. Uh, I think it's just setting in. If you notice, through much of the early part of the show, I drank a really big iced tea from uh, Starbucks, I, I did notice. I'm very worried about you. <laughs> yes. Yes. That is always the source of my caffeine. Well, uh, find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. Find us on Twitter at Common Good Talk. Find uh, us online at 1160hope.com. And as always, get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, review, and uh, grateful for those of you uh, who do that. So we are always thankful for that. Uh, It's kind of sad to constantly uh, and regularly do highlight stories that are hard, especially about people in our profession, right, about pastors. But I do think... Part of what are the one of the roles that our our um, our show can play is to highlight also uh, some of the uh, uh, some of the abuses that churches do, some of the bad things that pastors do, uh, and so this is right out of our backyard in Chicago here at the Chicago Tribune this weekend. Uh, Chicago pastor charged with bilking federal program to feed needy kids, spending one hundred and forty two thousand dollars on a Bentley Yeesh. for himself. Uh, the slogan once plastered outside the Reverend Clarence Smith Jr. storefront church on the Chicago's west side promised to make the minist- make the quote ministry meaningful to the imperfect man. It turns out Smith has been far from perfect himself. Federal authorities allege Smith, who has led the New Life Impact Church in the Lawndale neighborhood for years, has been indicted on charges alleging he stole hundreds of thousands of dollars from a federal program intended to feed needy children, spending the money instead on a $142,000 Bentley luxury vehicle and other personal expenses. It's actually not the first time that Smith, age 45, has been accused of financial malfeasance. Malfeasance? Malfeasance. (laughs) Yeah, I think the last one you did was right. (laughs) Nearly a decade ago, he he pleaded guilty in DuPage County to using Ford signatures to swindle an elderly man's estate out of more than $100,000. In the year since, Smith has struggled financially, uh, and it goes on and on. Now, uh, when you read these things... uh, Primarily, do you feel sadness, anger? I know it's all of these. Uh, what what comes out of you as you read? If you were just reading the newspaper this weekend and you started reading this article, uh, what is your primary feeling? I'm not eager to admit the ratio. I would like to hear it. It's a large part anger. Uh, me too. It's me anger too. before sadness. It is sadness too. 
but just what you read, and there's more, is so infuriating. And I get, all right, let me just think of some of the responses that might be coming to mind. Well, hey, pastors aren't perfect people either. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, totally. Um, most of us aren't doing this. So, like, for me, and maybe I'm off my rocker, maybe I'm idealistic. In my head still, even with everything that's happened, particularly in Chicagoland the last year, yes, I still hold pastors to possibly an unreasonable standard. And maybe part of that's on me. But it to swindle people out of anything, it's not even just the amount, to be honest. It's the intent. It's yes. the heart to masquerade as a man of God mm-hmm. and to in any way mislead, exploit, or abuse, especially the elderly and the needy. Like, you, you'd have to have... There's just no conscience. And yeah. that's what... Like, if it was just, oh, guy that runs cash for gold store, swindle people. Like, all of us would go, well, yeah. Still sad, so, but okay. It is still sad. Yeah. And it is heartbreaking that even that seems normative for some of us. But to do it as a pastor, as... I mean, the word pastor includes within it the idea of a shepherd, someone who mm-hmm. who cares mm-hmm. for people, who protects people, and to do quite the opposite under the guise of a spiritual leader yes. is so disheartening, but also so blood boiling to me. And we posted this on Facebook over the weekend because it's when I saw it. And, and uh, my friend, Trish Metz, who I know listened to the show, she commented and said, this is a sad story. I know so many wonderful pastors. I just feel badly when stories like this tarnish pastors yes. in general for people and my other friend Gail who's also equally wonderful she said me too so mm-hmm. like I appreciate that people are saying there's a, there's the obvious sadness of the story which is just the details of the story yeah. then as you were alluding to there's the residual sadness of the story because you and I both have unbelieving friends who read stories like this and go see this is why I don't want anything to do with your whole thing there because exactly I feel like I'm reading these every month of some pastor abusing somebody hiding something stealing from somebody why why would I want to be a part of that exactly. movement and I and part of me thinks I I don't blame you I I see the same stuff and think gosh how could anyone who's maybe on the fence read stuff like this and go, oh, yeah, that seems like a good cause. And I hate the. what makes me angry is the manipulation. Yeah. Uh, Smith, meanwhile, it says, continues to actively promote the church on Facebook, posting lengthy videos of himself preaching and urging followers to come to worship. A Facebook post earlier this week appeared to refer to his legal troubles. He wrote, one of the worst things in the world is not to learn from your prior mistakes. God has me doing a self-evaluation on where I messed up prior, so I won't do the same in the future. Oh, boy. The article, we print them out so we don't have the newspaper in front of us. The next page and a half is a litany of the many times he has tried to defraud people and steal money. Come on. And and that's what's so frustrating, because now you're going to pull God into the equation. I get it. You're a pastor, but, oh, God is revealing to me my past mistake. No, you got caught by the authorities. This is what happened. <laughs> right, right. And you got caught by the authorities in 2015, right. in 2016, in 2018. Clearly had a good year in 17, but it's unreal. And now where it makes me sad, and you just did a really good job, and your friends on Facebook did a good job on highlighting this. Here's a line. It's almost a throwaway line. This is the Chicago Tribune. So people all across the Chicagoland are reading this, right? Yeah. Here's the line. The charges marked the latest in a long line of Chicago area preachers Uh, who have been accused of stealing from their congregations or social programs. Gosh, if I wasn't a church person, if I wasn't a or maybe if I was, you know, and you just read that line on a Sunday morning, whenever this came out, like right there, you're exactly right. You're like, 
Uh, yeah, those of us who are in churches, we can go, man, I know 10 great pastors, 100 great pastors for of every course. one of these. And we right. want to. It's the same people in politics who are like, I know all these ver- all these great politicians. They're not all this. Right. But what do we hear about? Right. The this. And so to even read that line, you and I are Chicago area preachers. Uh-huh. Right. And so to read that line, that makes me sad and so angry. And then the guy is just a manipulator. And you could tell uh, it's just going to it's just another one in a long line in this area where, where it's just another black eye for well, the church. And somebody might be listening, thinking, well, then why are you doing the story then? Yeah. And I think there are probably a couple of reasons. One. We do want to celebrate, and exactly what you said, for every one of these stories, you know, we know hundreds of yes. great, upstanding men and women who are leading and pastoring churches and preaching the word. Two, um, financial scrutiny is okay, you know, like to ask questions if you're a part of a church, to ask for clarity, for ask for, I think, in a in an organization that's, you know, rooted in integrity, that should be okay. That should be fine to have a conversation, to raise a flag yes. or raise a hand or whatever, and I think... To, and again, we don't want to – we've actually tried to thread this needle over the last year to not, you know, to, to not only hi- highlight positive stories, yeah. hopeful stories, but to not also get totally bogged down like, oh, gosh, everything's falling apart either. Correct. But this is right in our backyard. It's something that apparently is far too common. We'd love to know what you think, too. Where, where have you seen this at play? How have you seen churches healed? My hope and prayer for this guy is that he's completely repentant. Yes. That he, he doesn't actually just feel bad that he's caught, but has like a like an encounter with Jesus. And is like, man, I, I've been swindling for far too long. Yes. Um, how do I make this right? Like, that would be, I would love to do that story. I'd love to have him on the show and say, man, I, I totally fell apart of the seams and I was forced for the first time to look at myself in the mirror and see what I actually was doing. And so that's ultimately our prayer is that people are healed and that they're not um, permanently jaded by stories like this. But to also say, and I hope you're hearing it from Brian and I, like if you are in the jaded camp, we totally get it. That's Ooh. okay. Like to be in that space for a season, but but keep trying. Yes. Like there are great communities and faithful leaders and people that aren't doing these kinds of things that it's it's worth, you know, getting back on the saddle. Yeah, I think it's a good way to put it. Like on the one hand, I we understand why, how a story like this would make you jaded, but let us encourage you don't let yourself get jaded. Right. And not permanently. Just, yeah, right. exactly. And go search out where this kind of thing isn't happening, ask the hard questions. And just pastors out there, let's just I know most 99% of us aren't doing this, but we maybe do some smaller like, like let's just do well. Yeah, <laughs> let's, let's just be, be better. Be, thank you. That's a better. <laughs> it's a 2020 slogan. Pastors of Chicago, be, be better. Be, let's just do everybody. It. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. That's a good point. Well, coming up next, we are going to do our longest list. I'm not sure that we've ever done one longer than this. 17 sacrifices the best leaders willingly make for their team. Huh. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us today. Uh, here in a second, we're going to talk about 17 sacrifices the best leaders willingly make for their team. But before we do that, let me tell you about something from InTouch Ministries. The new year is underway, and our friends at InTouch Ministries want to bless you with a complimentary wall calendar called Blessed to Be the Church, featuring Charles Stanley's original photography of churches around the world, an inspirational Bible verse from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and a motivational quote from Dr. Stanley accompany each photo. So get yours today 
absolutely free at 1160hope.com slash contest. And everyone who signs up will be entered to win a copy of the Charles Stanley Life Principles Bible. Sign up today at 1160hope.com slash contest. That is 1160hope.com slash contest. Ooh, nicely done. Thank you. So, 17 sacrifices. He says, part of being a leader is picking the right priorities. Good leaders have a knack for knowing what to take on. Great leaders also know what to give up. That's good. True leaders make sacrifices and forgo things employees don't, shouldn't, or wouldn't. I've seen many great leaders make many sacrifices over my 30-year career, he writes. I've made many myself. I've also seen leaders refuse to give up things the mantle of great leadership demands. Hmm. Dismissing such sacrifices often negatively affected their careers. So I share now 17 critical things the best leaders give up willingly. Give these, give these things up, and employees will give you their hearts and minds willingly. So that's a, that's a, pretty, big, uh, that's a pretty big promise here. Uh, so let's go through quickly this list of 17, and we'll see what, what we think about it. Okay, them. so how do, we, how do we prevent this from simply us reading 17 things off a page? How do we make this... I'm just going to read one and get your gut reaction, and then we'll read the paragraph under it. Okay. First one's self-interest. You put that number one. Do you think that belongs to number one? I do. Really? Well, not knowing what the next ones are. That's I think, <laughs> I think self-interest can really... When you see people as a, as a means to your end, as opposed to you there to serve them and empower right. them, I think that gets quickly sniffed out. The phrase he uses here is, um, I'm not saying they don't want to grow and advance or that they're martyrs. I'm saying that they lift as they climb. I like that phrase. They phrase. lift as they climb. Number two, they give up the spotlight. Hmm. What do you think? It goes along the same. You know, if it's always it about is kind of the same, right? If it's always about uh, you know my platform and advance, and we've all seen leaders like this, right? Yeah. Like whether it be in churches or businesses, where it's all about sell my book or right, or right. my name is always on the marquee, and that that would be hard to always be under that. So yeah. I like how he says too. So he says not only do great leaders lift as they climb, they do so from the shadows. The best leaders I've ever worked for illuminated the work of others while openly demonstrating they didn't need or want the attention. Mm. Do you find that one hard, actually, by the way? Because you're do. a leader, and a big part of your role is literally standing on a stage under lights. Yes, that's a good point. Right? So how do you how do, you do that as a church leader when it's like, yeah, but a big part of my job, though, is to lead from this very like central, elevated, visible position. You know what I mean? I think one of the ways to do that is when you're in that spotlight, highlight other people. Ooh, that's good. Uh, so you could bring other people up there with you to be in, literally in the spotlight. Or when you're up there, be like, hey, I just want to tell you about... Uh, you know, or we're going to be starting this soon, and it's being led by this person. I got right. nothing to do with it. Right, like all this kind That's of stuff. That's even coaching I'll give to people when they're writing sermons. Like, hey, make yourself the hero less. Yes, right. Like when you think of stories, like, oh, what's an example of me doing this? Like, now think of an example of someone doing that. That's really for good. you. That's that's a hard shift though. Uh, credit is a thing they sacrifice. Great leaders look in the mirror when blames to be had and only look away when credit is to be given. They happily bask in the glow of others-oriented accolades. That's do you find good. that one to be natural for you, or is that? more tough to pull off it, it um so and this might be coming later but again i haven't looked at the list but uh credit it is a hard one the harder one i have is taking on the blame all the time oh, like, really? I'm, I'm guessing they might get to this later but uh, we'll see okay 
but it's like the flip side of the credit. It's a good leader still like stand at the front and take the arrows and take the blame. And I was right. like, well, that wasn't my fault. Yeah, right. Like, was, right. Did you see what they did? <laughs> did you see what they did? And I struggle with that. And right. I think I've taken some rightful hits because of that. Like, hmm. oh, what? You're going to take the credit but run the bus over me? You know, and you're like, well, no, right. that wasn't my intention. I was just being honest about right. it. And I, and I think good leaders not only kind of deflect credit, but they probably take an, a um, – an almost inappropriate amount of the blame that that should be more shared. That's that's a that's well said, man. I, we can't take this long on all seventeen. We're never going to get through. It. <laughs> right, so seventeen sacrifices the best leaders willingly make for their team. So far, we've covered self interest, the spotlight, credit. Um, the next one is their time. Mm. I had a leader who said the door is always open, but it was like his door was open at the top for show, closed at the bottom in reality. <laughs> what are those oh, nursery man. doors? Yeah. <laughs> oh, is that what he's getting at? I think so. Oh, interesting. It was like working for a bank teller. He wasn't serious about his offer, didn't really want me in his office, and he made me feel like I was intruding. Availability is often the most important thing you can give employees. I just, just yesterday had someone from our church write, and they were asking for prayer for something. It was on Facebook, so I, and I responded like fairly quickly. And he's like, I just got to let you know. And it wasn't just for me, by the way. It was like, I so appreciate the leaders of this church and how available you guys yeah. actually are. And I thought that was encouraging because I often feel like I struggle in that area. And I know that one of the struggles with this is just helping people understand. Cause I think people perceive when you're a leader, especially of a bigger organization that your time is all taken up. Huh. So it does. I'm not even part of a big organization, but the number of emails or Talks I get where people are like, hey, I know you're really busy. And I'm like, what am I doing yeah. that's portraying What am that? I giving off? They're like, yeah, oh, you are bothering yeah. me right now. Uh, but no, yeah, go ahead. Keep going. Yeah. Let me, can I just read a few? Go, go, let me yep. just read the rest, and then we'll highlight the ones that we like. How about that? I, I like it. Okay. 17 sacrifices the best leaders willingly make for their team. Self-interest, the spotlight, credit, their time, information, the need to always be right, their best people, pretense, Control, what got them there, mm. perfection, their ego, position power, the need to dominate discussion, biases, bad habits, and the feeling they need to prove themselves. Mm. I wish we had more time to get into all of these, actually. They're all really good. So is there... Any that like just reading the actual items jump out at you? You're like, okay, that's that's one I I need. I think um, control. I'm not really a very controlling person, but like at a place like a church, when you're in charge, or you know, you feel like you're the in the spotlight. Like you're for better or for worse, you're the one that people are going to come to. You want to be like, well, I want to make sure it goes the way I want it to go. Yeah, right. If I'm going to have to answer for it, let me be the you know, let me play, be control. Uh, I don't struggle with perfectionism, quite frankly. Um, the need to dominate discussion. That's a pretty good one. Uh, and bad habits is a good one too. A lot of times we want to keep our people like, Hey, you got to be on time. Hey, you got to do this. You got to do this. And then be like, right. well, you know, they don't either have the guts or they don't want to say to you, well, you don't do that. Right. And it, it becomes uh, like a do as I say, not as I do. Exactly. Situation. And right. I think that that is really dangerous uh, within a uh, within any kind of organization, including a church. So one of the ones here, it says uh, position power. That was number mm-hmm. 13. They rely on personal power instead, influencing others with their affability, respectful approach and energy. They never use their title to bludgeon people into getting what they want. That's a really good one. I like uh, number five was information. The very best leaders don't hoard information to hold the power. Oh, they give it freely to empower others. I've, I've encountered so many leaders like that where it's like, Really intentionally, cards always close to the chest because if they control the information, then they control the room or they control the team. Like I never really realized until 
probably in the last 10 years mm. or so, how often that one's employed. Like, oh, he's the keeper. She's the keeper of all the information. And that's like, it can be a little bit of a power play. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, the, the whole number 10 here, what got them there, like in a church, we're in a unique situation because uh, I led the team that started our church. Right. But it could be easy for people, for me, not to just be like, well, this is how we've always done it. This is what got yeah, us here. Right. Right. But it could be easy for other people to perceive that's how it has to be. Well, hmm. you know, we got to keep doing what got us here because he's still, the you know, and, and so I think that, man, this article is really good. And uh, it feels a lot of a lot of like Dave Ferguson's Hero Maker, which we keep referencing yep, a lot sure. of like, how do you empower others? That's yep. what true leaders do instead of making yourself the hero of uh-huh. every story and of your church. I think this is great. We actually are doing a series on that book coming up this year. Yeah. On Hero Maker. It's going to be a five week series on Hero Maker, which I think is going to be really uh, that starts. Let me. Oh, that's coming up soon. February 16th. If you want to come on by Community Christian Church, any of our 11 Chicagoland locations. Hopefully Dave is teaching at one of the locations every He's week. He's teaching a lot of them. Yeah, I think he and I are dividing that. literally wrote the book. Well, <laughs> it's true, and he's talked about it so much. Oh, yeah. Like this, I, it's, I've seen him do it in conversation and then on massive platforms. Like He just lives it. So like it, yeah. those, are the, those are the best moments, too, where it's like not just a concept for him. He's like, hey. I've actually just really seen this work and it's how we, we've tried to organize our team. So I think, yeah, I think it's going to be helpful, but it's also, we're going to try to adapt it. So it's not just for the leader or the church planner, but for the everyday person to think about their jobs or their parenting or their marriages. How can I live like a hero maker there? Yeah. And I think, uh, yeah. I think that'll be good. Well, uh, hopefully you resonate with these 17, whether you're a leader or you're somebody who's following somebody. Yeah. Right. I think these are really helpful to know. Well, coming up next, uh, something that you deemed rapid fire. We're going to give it another try. <laughs> Some stories that we didn't think were worthy of entire segments, but we thought were interesting. We're going to do that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you joining us on this Tuesday evening. Uh, you can find us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show, Twitter at Common Good Talk. Find that podcast wherever you get your podcast. How about you subscribe, rate, review, unsubscribe? Ooh, subscribe, rate, review again. It doesn't work. I think it does. I, I feel like this is the modern version of Ferris Bueller going back, trying to have the car in reverse <laughs> to take the miles off. I don't think it works that way. <laughs> That was a good reference right oh, there. Oh, man, I love that movie I'm going to so say much. you're right just because you got that <laughs> reference right there. What a car, too. Let my goodness. My, let my Cameron go. Oh, so good. So good. Never took one lesson. Oh, that's funny. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we've done this uh, a couple times now, something that we call rapid fire. Oftentimes, we will find articles, stories, whatever else it might be that can take up the whole block, nine minutes, ten minutes for us to discuss. But sometimes we come across, whether it be funny or interesting stories, but you and I look at each other going, like, I don't have ten minutes on that. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, uh, Some people listening are like, yeah, we've heard those segments. Exactly. <laughs> We're like five minutes in, and you're like, well, got to keep that's going. That's the end of my thoughts. Oh, there's so many people going, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> people probably have, like, Specific episodes. <laughs> just, they're emailing us right now. Yeah. Oh, you just dates. One. Yeah. <laughs> and just dates. And so uh, I've grabbed us three stories that I think some of them are funny. One of them's fascinating. The last one we'll do. Uh, the first one is this, and I don't know if you saw this. Family Feud. Fan, are you a fan of Family Feud ever in your life? Uh, I'd, fan feels a little strong. I think it's fun. Yeah. I, I don't know that fan is totally true, but. So on Family Feud Canada, 
uh, a woman missed out on $10,000 when she gave a wrong answer, but the viral video has gotten her $10,000 worth of food. The host (laughs) said, real simple, there's one question, only one answer. Whoever gets it, you're playing for $10,000. That's it. Whoever guesses this wins the game. Okay? And here was the question. Name Popeye's favorite food. (laughs) Contestant Eve Dubois could barely wait from the finish board for hitting the buzzer and saying... Chicken. <laughs> What's an- actually written is chicken. Yes. <laughs> Her answer hilariously accompanied by a little dance. I don't know if you've seen the video. She went kind of crazy, like thinking I nailed it. Her family was stunned. Well, obviously, so chicken was wrong. And the answer was spinach, which the other person got. She thought and she said, I thought you meant Popeye's chicken. While they missed out on $10,000, Popeye's on Friday offered her $10,000 worth of Popeye's chicken (laughs) and other menu items. They wrote, our survey says you got it right. DM (laughs) us to claim your $10,000 of Popeye's. Hashtag love that chicken from Popeye's. Popeyes. I laughed so hard when I saw that. I don't know if you saw the video clip. I haven't, no. Hilarious, isn't it? I don't know. I haven't seen it. Hilarious uh, story. The story is hilarious. You yes. are right. Correct. Yes. All right. So what's our noise going on to the next story? Uh, number two. Oh, come on. Rapid fire. Oh, yeah. Sorry. You say rapid fire. Rapid fire. This is the Christian version because I'm going to go pew pew. <laughs> get it? Because of, of the pews. I get it. Churches used to have pews, Brian, know, and they I were like they were like you, long it. benches. I get it, and it is the most you joke ever. But right it's there. also sort of the sound of a laser. That's <laughs> pew, the pew, most pew. you joke ever. Pew pew pew. Uh, Tiger Woods caddies for his son Charlie during junior golf event. See the ten-year-old swing. It's not every day you see a famous caddy on the green. Tiger Woods was spotted over the weekend caddying for his son Charlie Axel, who turns eleven next month during a junior golf event in South Florida, according to. The Golf Channel video captured by an onlooker shows the professional golfer 44 standing by Charlie as the child showed off his best swing while other photos showed Woods carrying his son's golf bag. You chose this one, I think, just for like the heartwarming aspect of like a mega superstar carrying the bag for his 11 year old son. Yeah. So I always feel like this, this like, oh, that's so sweet. Like. Tiger Woods, obviously, he wants to be there for his son. He's carrying his son's back. Or like all the clips you see now of LeBron James sitting at his kids' basketball games, right? Right. Like these are the dads. These dads are the greatest at their professions, arguably, or top five ever. Uh, and I just wonder if some of their greatest moments right now for Tiger Woods, like, is it playing in the Masters or is it now carrying the bag of, of for yeah. your son? Or is it uh, for LeBron James? It just has to be a different feeling. Like, I get it. Like, my kids are a little older now. I yeah. was never a professional athlete, never even close, but I, I liked playing <laughs> sports. Yeah. I can't tell you how much greater joy I get. Uh, at going to my son's baseball games, hmm. going to my daughter's tennis match, going to my daughter's soccer games, like going to their piano recital or, or like their orchestra concert or whatever else it might be. I think there's something that happens, and you're probably already feeling this, even though your kids are a lot younger. There's just something that happens when you're a parent where eventually you go, I just want to live like supporting my kid and seeing oh, my greatest successes are as they succeed yeah. and you feel greater nerves when they're doing it. You feel greater excitement. And so somebody as big as Tiger Woods or LeBron James, seeing that that is still the same thing, we know it is, but it still warms my heart. It still makes me like, Oh, that's kind of cool. It should warm your heart. It's a nice feel good story. And it it's is. a nice picture. Some might say, 
Yeah, these dads are able to be at every game because yep. they have millions of dollars and they have <laughs> flexibility that a lot of us don't have, which they're probably not wrong. But either way, I think it's worth celebrating. Do you want to? Do you need a drum roll for this last one? Nope, just say rapid fire. Oh, because you want to do the sound effect? I do. Are you going to do the Christian version? Nope. Rapid fire. <laughs> pew, pew, pew. <laughs> yeah, you just sounds cooler now that I hear them Thank side you. by side. I want you to do this one because you, uh, you found this article and it is fascinating. All right. A teenager discovered a new planet on the third day of his NASA internship. <laughs> That's just the best headline ever. Most people sit through countless orientations on the first few days of the job, but one teen discovered a planet on his third day. His name is Wolf Cuckier. Wolf, awesome name. That's a that's a really killer name. Of Scarsdale, New York, had wrapped up his junior year of high school when he headed off to intern in the summer at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, uh, Maryland. Maryland. <laughs> MD is Maryland. <laughs> I had a brain fart. I was like, Greenbelt doctor. <laughs> uh, I'm just totally. Blanked. All right. Where he discovered a planet orbiting two stars. In stories that highlight the difference in intelligence between Ian and Wolf Cookier, <laughs> the planet now known as TOI-1338b, which really rolls off the tongue, <laughs> is nearly seven times as large as Earth and has two stars, one that's about 10% more massive than our sun and another only a third of the sun's mass and less bright, according to NASA. It was the second time he had interned at the Space Research Laboratory, having spent the summer of 2018 working on a Goldilocks Zone project under the mentorship of NASA aer- aerospace technology researcher Ravi Kaparakupi. Kopar- <laughs> <laughs> Is that close? Ka- no, but I like Kapara- it. Poo. Nope. <laughs> Kappa. Nah, it's not really the story. Kapparapu. Yeah, you're probably the best. Uh, Kakir was invited back to intern at the space flight complex, but the name I can't pronounce was not available to provide guidance. Kakir was placed under the tutelage of NASA researcher scientist uh, Veselin Kostov, who had never had a high school intern before. I gave him a brief outline of what to do. He learned everything by himself. He learned really quickly. He really developed a very good understanding of the field, which is further highlighted by the fact that he discovered a plan. I don't know if that's like a record or something. Will he like win an award for this or something? I would, I would think so. He said, uh, the mentor said, it, it was just Wolf and me in the first couple of hours. And when we were 99% certain the two traits we saw were real, we started reaching out to colleagues. It definitely colored the rest of the internship, he said. <laughs> And in some of the least surprising things here, he says, now a high school senior, uh, uh, Kokier has his sights set on colleges such as Princeton, Stanford, and MIT, where he can major in astrophysics or physics. I think this guy's, I think this kid has a future in the field. Wow, good for him, though. But then, also still being a high school kid with uh, a brother, Kokier couldn't name the planet, uh, but his brother offered a better name. Wolftopia. Because <laughs> his last name was Wolf. Uh, so that reminds you. No, I think his first, his first name is Wolf. Oh, you're right. Sorry. Yeah. Wolftopia. <laughs> he should get to name it. Can we do a segment called Wolftopia? That would be awesome. I also like this last one. He's still figuring out his summer plans. <laughs> what does he do? Does he work at Starbucks? Does he work at, like, like, what does he do? The guy discovered a planet. I'm trying to think of a pun, but I can't think of anything. Does it mess with you that people were still discovering planets? Not it, even at a high school college. It color. doesn't. Does it mess with you? It doesn't bother me at all. I find it fascinating. It is fascinating, but I think, you know, I, there's so much out there that I don't understand. And I know that's a good Louis Giglio sermon right there. Uh, yes. Wait. Okay. Um, so he makes this discovery. Yes. Is this going to be funny? As a high schooler, right? Uh-huh. 
Do you think that was impromptu or did he plan it? <laughs> no, that is, no one. That that I'm looking rapid. for high fives. No, no high fives. <laughs> that is rapid fire. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Welcome back to The Common Good, and that music can only mean one thing. What does it mean, Brian? It means we're at the end of the show. <laughs> it's your question for me. I really thought you were going to ask me, and then you asked yourself, and that just totally caught me off guard. It means the end of the show, where our, our, uh, our uh, producers, they find us crazy stories from the interweb that we have not read, we have not vetted. Uh, but we are going to laugh with you. We're going to we're going to be insulted with you. We're going to cry with you. Why don't you, Ian Simpkins, read the first one? I'll tell you why, Brian. I don't want to. All right, Wisconsin police respond to sticky bun altercation at gas station. Oh boy, a clerk and a suspect at a mobile gas station on East Washington Avenue hurled a package of sticky buns oh. back and forth at each other. Across the counter after the clerk accused the suspect of stealing snacks early Tuesday morning, Madison Police Report. This is in Madison? Yeah. An employee told police that Shakol G. Burks of Madison opened a package of combos and consumed the snack while she hit a package of cookies and two beef sticks in her coat. Police spokesman Joel Despain said in a statement, the clerk said he confronted Burks about the combos and the snacks hidden in her coat when she approached the counter to pay for a sticky bun. Burks became angry and tossed the sticky bun at the clerk who returned glazed bun fire, Despain said. (laughs) Oh, yeah. From, uh, is that from Hook? No, what is it from, John? Animal House. Oh, oh not even close. Yeah, sorry. I mean, there's similarities. Actually, yeah, the food fight in Hook was probably better. I think. <laughs> in, in hindsight, yes, Arkansas. A uh, man calls police to report cheeseburger stolen from a motel nightstand. A lot of food-related ones today. Yeah. A man claimed someone stole his cheeseburger off a. Mo- Why is it on a motel nightstand? In Benton, Arkansas, in an attempt to solve the alleged hamburglary, Wait. Keegan Byers filed a report. You're going to say we did this one already, right? Yes. Yep, we're going to keep reading it, though. <laughs> I wasn't going to sell out our producer here, but yeah. Oh. Byers informed the officer that he purchased two cheeseburgers at a nearby gas station. He reportedly ate one of the burgers and then placed one on the nightstand. When Byers woke up hours later, he said the cheeseburger was gone. There was another person sleeping in the room at the time. That individual spoke to police but claimed that they did not touch the cheeseburger. Here's what you'd expect in this story. The officer noted in the report that Byers was extremely intoxicated at the time of the incident. I'd gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. That was a new drop, though. I think. (laughs) All right, Missouri. Kansas City Bar installs White Claw Claw Machine. Everybody loves it. Mm. This is such a bad idea. A White Claw Claw Machine. Do you know what a claw machine is? Yeah, where like it goes down and then it drops the, the thing that you're right, supposed to right. Yeah, should you be dropping carbonated beverages from that height? Mm. Is that a good idea? Anyway, White Claw, a hard seltzer that boasts 100 calories, has soared in popularity in recent years with Brian Fromm. Now you can try sure. to win a prize by clawing right a White Claw. <laughs> Obviously. Uh, at Gimbal's... Gambles Social Club. To play, you just deposit a dollar and you'll get a chance to grab an empty can of... Oh, it's empty. Boring. Winners exchange the can at the bar. So far, the reaction has been very positive. Everybody loves it. It's so awesome. <laughs> Says Gambles General Manager KJ Schultz. <laughs> Do you like the voice I gave him? It's Every- so awesome. Everybody loves it. It's so awesome. Schultz said the idea was proposed by an employee. Actually, one of my employees came to me and asked what I thought about the idea. So I sat and thought about it and told them I thought it was a really good idea. Then I got with my beer vendor and they thought it was a pretty good idea. So here we are. 
<laughs> that's good. Do you know what movie that's from? Toy Story. Yeah, well done. Uh, Missouri, Missouri lawmaker introduces my smoking hot wife to legislature. Oh, boy. The opening day of the legislative session in Missouri is full of pomp and circumstances. Circumstance, unanimous resolutions are passed. Bill of Rights is read. Lawmakers are given the floor to recognize special guests in the audience. State Rep Scott Cups, a Republican from Shell Knob in Barry County, was sworn in along ten, with 10 other freshman lawmakers. Cup added some levity to the proceedings when he made his audience introductions. I would like to introduce some very special folks to me. First of all, my smoking hot wife, Kim, who joked around about Barry County coming to the Capitol. He said to laughs with those in attendance before also introducing his parents, grandmother, and his wife's grandparents. I just want to take time to say thank you for my family. My two beautiful, yep. beautiful, handsome, striking sons, Walker and Texas Ranger. <laughs> or TR, as we call them. And of course, my red-hot smoking wife, Carly, <laughs> who is a stone-cold fox. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good one. I think it would have gotten greater laughs if he introduced his smoking hot mother-in-law. Yeah, or right. Like that. Do you remember when that was like really popular though in the area of like youth ministry and youth pastors? They the were, worst. It was. I don't know where the it started. Worst. It was like everybody, everyone took the stage, had some crack in there about their smoking hot wife. And so I, the worst. Okay, so you do remember? I'm not. Yes. I'm not um, formulating that out no. of thin air. Okay. Last but not least, Pennsylvania elementary teaching assistant charged after drinking beer at school. Brian. <laughs> An elementary school classroom aide is facing charges after police say he was drinking beer during the school day. Richland School District officials announced Thursday that 26-year-old Nicholas Galzinski was immediately fired after admitting to consuming alcohol while in the Richmond Elementary School December 16th. Police say a school resource officer was made aware of the situation when school officials reported smelling an odor of a malt beverage on Galzinski. They say Galzinski's coffee mug had yingling in it and was left sitting unsecured oh, no. in his workstation in the classroom. Police say officers found three empty 12-ounce cans of yingling in his backpack. School officials say Galzinski was a contracted employee from Ignite not Educational anymore. Solutions. Yeah. Newsflash. You can't drink and then come to work. You're not airline pilots. <laughs> that was maybe the most on-the-nose use of that drop, for <laughs> yes. sure. That definitely makes sense. Oh, there was some good ones. Lots of food-related ones today. Now I'm hungry. Now I'm hungry. Well, we're going to be back at this tomorrow. We we hope you'll join us from 4 to 6 p.m. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You've been listening to The Common Good, <laughs> AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. That was good.